First Peter chapter three, verses one through four. In this letter to Christians that are scattered across multiple regions in the Roman Empire, the Apostle Peter is concerned with how these believers respond to persecution. It is through their response to hostility and antagonism and threats that they will have an opportunity to enhance their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's been dealing with the Christian's social relationships, having addressed every Christian's relationship to governing authorities, and having addressed the Christian slave's relationship to his master, Peter now turns to the husband and wife relationship. He begins with addressing wives, which we will consider today. And then he turns to husbands, which we will, Lord willing, consider separately next week. Let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. This is God's word. If you want to stir up a hornet's nest, especially on social media, simply take a position on gender roles within marriage. Uh, This is one reason that we know this topic is so important to address because it does elicit such passionate and opposing viewpoints. We also know It's important to come to a clear understanding and application in this matter because the Word of God speaks in numerous places about it. This passage under consideration this morning is not the most extensive treatment of the differing roles of wives and husbands within the marriage relationship, but it does give us general instructions that we must grapple and come to terms with. People are confused. People are confused about what it means to be a man or a woman. They're confused about the purpose of life. Why are we even here? They're confused about who or what to worship. And they're confused about marriage. The Word of God does not recognize any type of marriage union except a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. So it doesn't matter how government defines marriage. It doesn't matter how any individual defines marriage. It doesn't matter how popular culture defines marriage. It only matters how God defines marriage. After all, it was his idea. And this is something that is going to help us to navigate this subject. The fact that marriage is not an invention of society. It is not something that somebody a long time ago came up with, and we all do it because we think it's a good idea. Marriage is rooted in creation. It was instituted by God before sin even entered into the world. God looked at the first man, Adam, and he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. And so God did something about it. God created out of man a woman, Genesis 2.18, a helper suitable to him. This means in part that God intends for both the man and the woman to fulfill specific roles within the marriage relationship because it honors him. Fundamentally, it honors him. 
And the Lord thankfully has not left us in the dark as far as what a healthy, God-honoring, and society-impacting marriage should look like. And to the extent that a wife fulfills her responsibilities in a marriage and the husband fulfills his, to this extent, we'll both experience peace and joy and satisfaction. Because doing God's will always brings peace and joy and satisfaction. And this is no less true in marriage. However, when we attempt to conduct marriages according to our ideas or preferences or in response to cultural pressure, we will experience the opposite. That is discord, discontentment, and maybe even misery. The state of the institution of marriage in our society today explains in many ways why many are miserable and thoroughly unsatisfied. So first of all, I want us to consider defining submission in marriage. Defining submission in marriage. Peter addresses two primary matters in this section. The first is general. It has to do with God's will for every wife in any marriage. The second matter is specific. It has to do with wives who find themselves in marriages with non-Christian husbands. Peter begins with addressing the general matter, that which applies to every wife. We read in verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And, And right off the bat, we run across a word that causes many to stumble. Submit. Now, we don't need to fear this word or misunderstand it, or abuse it, we can, we can come to terms with what it means for a wife to submit to her husband with the implied understanding that God's plan is always the best for all parties that are involved. We've already encountered the word submit, and therefore we've already defined it. To submit is to place yourself under another. Every Christian submits to governing authorities. Every Christian slave is called to submit to his master. And every Christian wife is called to submit to her husband. Out of every possible social situation that calls for submission, only the husband-wife relationship is rooted in creation. So only the husband-wife relationship represents emotional, spiritual, and physical oneness. Only the husband-wife relationship reflects Christ in his church. And it's by taking into consideration these things that we are led to understand the submission of a wife to her husband. And the first thing we notice is that Peter begins this whole section, chapter 3, verse 1, with this phrase, in the same way. In the same way as what? Keep in mind that when Peter wrote this letter, he did not include chapter numbers and verse numbers, just like you wouldn't include those in any letter that you would write. Every chapter and every verse number in the Bible was added after the fact. That year was 1227 A.D., if you're curious, as far as when those were added. And they were added simply to help the reader find his or her place. And mostly, these divisions, they are helpful. But sometimes, the divisions that have been imposed on the text actually obscure the flow of thought. And that is partly what we see here, because we see verse 1 of chapter 3. Here, we see it as the start of a new section because it's a new chapter. But Peter is still in the same topic. When he writes in the same way, he's referring back to what he's already been speaking about. He's not shifted gears. 
The last place that we found this, found this, this wording about submission was in chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. So this tells us how wives are to submit to their husbands with all respect, which tells us that submission is a matter of the heart. Peter is not saying that wives submit to husbands in the exact same way that a slave submits to a master. Marriage is a different type of relationship than that. Peter is not saying in any way that a wife is a slave to her husband. That's not what he's saying here. But no, the similarities are this. They are found, first of all, in motives. The motive for submission in any area is always the same, for the Lord's sake. And we find that all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, in relation to submission to government. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So anytime you place yourself under another, it is always as unto the Lord. You are first and foremost acting out of obedience to God. So this is always done with an eye toward pleasing God. This is why anytime anyone desires to abuse their authority, you are not under obligation to obey. If you are submitting for the Lord's sake, then you cannot do anything that violates his word or your conscience. This includes, obviously, the marriage relationship. A wife is never under obligation from God to follow the leadership of a husband into what is clearly sinful. Nor is she under obligation to do that which violates her own conscience before God. Submission is first and foremost unto the Lord. Another similarity in any area of submission to the marriage relationship is found in attitude. Not just motives, but also in attitude. This is seen in two ways. First, there should be a healthy aversion to displeasing the one that you're submitting to. To say that another way, there should be a desire to please. Secondly, attitude is shaped by a fear of God or a lack thereof. Attitude has to do with pleasing someone or avoiding their displeasure, and this is always rooted in the fear of God. When you maintain a, a posture of, of awe towards the Lord, this worshipful posture of awe, which is the fear of the Lord, then this is going to affect your attitude in every relationship, in every sphere. And we all know that attitude makes all the difference. You can have an employee that does everything that he's supposed to do, but he does it with a bad attitude. He doesn't do any more than, than is expected of him. And he, he exudes discontentment. He doesn't care when he makes mistakes. He doesn't care when he loses the business money. He always complies, but it's always with a frown or with a sigh. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't care if he incurs your displeasure. And this is directly related to whether he fears the Lord. If someone does not stand in awe of God, they are more likely not to care whether they displease, hurt, or anger another. They have a bad attitude. So if we take these ideas of acting respectfully, of being motivated for the Lord's sake, and maintaining an attitude rooted in the fear of the Lord, we can then better understand the submission of a wife to her husband. Simply put, a wife is called to place herself under her husband's authority and leadership. This is biblical submission in marriage. It's unpopular in our day and time. Saying it might get you banned from YouTube 
It might get you a community standards warning on Facebook. But just because our modern culture tends to have this visceral reaction to the idea of different roles for men and women within marriage does not mean that our modern cultural teaching is right. We need historical perspective. I say that because these ideas, they were revolutionary when Peter wrote them. They were not countercultural because the concept of submission and marriage was new. No, that was already an expectation in the, in the Greco-Roman world. They were revolutionary because of how the teaching of the New Testament bestowed on women a status they had never known before. You see, what's astounding about what Peter and Paul both wrote about women is that nowhere did they say women are inferior to men. They never implied that women are intellectually subpar. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that women are more prone to sinning. Yet the message about women in the Roman Empire in the first century and throughout most of history prior to that was that women were all of these things. Inferior in status, intellect, and in their ability to resist temptation. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he bestowed on women dignity and respect that they had never experienced before. Our Lord's treatment of women became the paradigm for the early church. Peter affirms in chapter 3, verse 7, that women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Both men and women share equally in eternal life through Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28 that male and female are one in Christ Jesus, meaning that men and women have equal status before God and equal access through Jesus Christ into God's presence. Men and women are equal in worth, dignity, and honor. The early church treated women in such a way that amazed and even scandalized society. This was not the case before Christianity made it so. Submitting to authority in any realm does not diminish worth or dignity or honor. Because remember, a young Jesus submitted to his parents. Jesus always, even as an adult, submitted to his Father in heaven. There's simply no validity to the idea that submission somehow strips one of their worth or value or honor before the Lord or before anyone else. In a marriage, submission looks like the wife following the lead of her husband. A wise husband is going to listen to his wife. A wise husband is going to take into consideration her view. He's going to weigh her input. He's going to discuss options with her. He's going to actively seek her counsel. But in the final estimation, the husband is called by God to be the ultimate decision maker in the home, in the marriage. The wife is called to follow his lead. This is the general idea of biblical submission within the marriage relationship. Peter, however, is addressing a specific scenario. And this is what we find in the remainder of verse 1 through verse 4. And so having defined submission in marriage, let's consider subversion through submission in marriage. Subversion through submission in marriage. I'm going to break that down. Verse 1 continues. Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. The scenario that Peter is addressing here is when a Christian lady finds herself married to a non-Christian. 
since Christianity is still young at this point, and most believers were all fairly recent converts in many cases, most likely these were women who became Christians after they were married or who were in an arranged marriage with a non-Christian. But this was not the situation of every wife in the church. It was not even the situation of most wives in the church. We know this because Peter writes, even if you find yourself in this situation. Even if. That implies that these women were in the minority who were finding themselves in this particular scenario. The biblical teaching, of course, is that a Christian only marry a Christian. But we know that life throws curveballs. We know that one spouse can become a Christian after they're married. We know that one spouse can discover after marriage that the other is not really a believer, had just put on a good show during the dating phase. Uh, We know that there are many other situations in which a a wife might find herself married to a non-believer. So what should be done? Well, the marriage does not cease to be valid just because one partner is a Christian and one is not. Peter does not instruct, nor does anywhere in the New Testament instruct that a Christian can simply leave the marriage on this basis? No. Remember, we're discovering how to be a witness for Christ in different social situations, and this is no exception. Peter is concerned for the witness of the wife to her husband. The husbands in question are disobedient to the word. That's what we read. Which means simply they do not believe the gospel. And there's this play on words here in verse 1. The husband does not obey the word, but can be won over without a word. Now, this is not to minimize the importance of sharing the gospel verbally. The wife has done that. Instead of nagging her husband, which we know is is not an effective way to motivate a man to do anything, she demonstrates her faith in Jesus Christ through her behavior. It is a beautiful character that will impact the husband most effectively. So it will be helpful to pull back a moment and and take a broader lens view of the situation of a typical wife in the first century Roman Empire. Like we saw with the instructions to slaves, the wife is, is to submit whether her husband is kind or harsh. And in reading that and understanding that, we're tempted to cry unfair, unjust, but remember, The very fact that the slave endured unjust treatment with respect was what God very often used to bring his or her master to repentance. So if we're always looking to escape unfair or unjust or difficult situations, we're going to throttle that which God intends to do through us. According to the ancient philosopher and historian Plutarch, in the Greco-Roman world, a wife was not supposed to have any friends of her own. Her husband's friends became her friends. She was also expected to worship the gods of her husband. So you can see where a woman becoming a Christian would would rock the household expectations. Because the wife, as a follower of Jesus, would refuse to worship any other gods, and she would suddenly be a part of a whole new network of friends in the church setting, This violated the Greco-Roman ideal of an orderly household. Again, revolutionary. Also, economic prosperity and the health of the family 
was tied into the worship of certain gods. If you don't worship these gods, we're going to go broke. If you don't worship these gods, people in the family are going to get sick. That was the thinking. So a wife's conversion to Christianity would would be seen as a threat, not only to the family, but also to society at large. This is why Christians were often blamed for public calamities or for natural disasters or just plain bad luck. What have the Christians been up to that this is happening to us? They had disrupted the religious status quo by calling on Jesus as God and King. Secondly, the non-Christian husband would view his wife's worship of the Lord Jesus as rebellion. This is especially true because she could not just adopt Jesus Christ as one more God. No, he is to be worshipped to the exclusion of every other so-called God. And what would this mean? Well, it might mean that the husband would suffer embarrassment, criticism, or worse. It could damage his social standing and possibly even damage his future income potential. And these are no small things. We often think about counting the cost to follow Jesus in terms of what it will cost us individually. But let's also recognize that often your conversion costs others something as well. Thirdly, by the wife attending worship gatherings with other Christians, this gives her the opportunity to have other friends besides exclusively her husband's friends. And here's another strain placed on the marriage. Now, Peter, of course, is not speaking to any of these scenarios specifically, even though they were very real scenarios. But he does instruct wives to submit to their husband's wishes. In this way, Peter allows for the specifics of what the submission looks like to be worked out within each marriage relationship. The wife is not called to submit to all men. Only to one man. That's her husband. And as far as she can do so without disobeying God or violating her conscience, the expectation is that she will do so. We can get so hung up on the idea of not liking submission in certain situations that we actually miss something that is highly and hugely significant at the time that Peter wrote this. And that is this. In, in first century Roman society, it was only the role of the husband to instruct his wife. But in this case, look what's happening. It is an apostle of Jesus Christ, Simon Peter, who is doing so, who is giving the instructions. And, and we might not think this is a big deal, but I guarantee you that it was. This direct instruction to the wife and earlier to the slave, which was normally only the role of the husband or the master, respectively, shows that both slaves and wives have their own individual moral responsibility. They are responsible for their own decisions. It doesn't matter whether a husband objected to his wife's autonomy in decision-making. Before the Lord, every wife, every single person, in fact, is expected to make their own decisions. The cruelest master or the harshest husband cannot take the privilege and right of choice away. This was unheard of in Greek thought that influenced Roman thinking. A slave may be owned, but he does not belong to his master. A, a woman might be married, but she is not the property of her husband. A wife is free in the Lord, and this freedom is seen in her capacity 
to choose her own response and behavior for the sake of her conscience before the Lord. Here's the next point. A husband cannot object to Peter's instructions. Why not? Well, he can't object because at the same time, Peter is affirming his authority as a husband. It doesn't matter, again, if the husband is a Christian or not. Male authority in marriage is rooted in creation, not conversion. So a wife's submission to her husband's leading is not motivated by the expectations of society. That's any society, ancient or modern. A wife does not submit because ancient society expects it. Nor does she rebel because modern society expects it. She submits to her husband because of the example of Jesus Christ. Remember from the previous passage, Jesus silently submitted himself, even in unjust and unfair situations. In doing so, he entrusted himself continually to God. And it was his act of submission that ultimately led Jesus to the final act of submission at the cross. Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross, took the punishment for sin that we each deserve, and he rose from the dead. It was only because Jesus submitted to his Father by submitting to his circumstances that we have life in him. And this pattern is repeated over and over in every relationship, including especially within the marriage relationship. For it is the marriage relationship that is a mirror of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So what is Peter doing here? This is fascinating. What is Peter doing here? Well, on one hand, he is upholding the social order. But on the other hand, he's at the same time subverting it. What do I mean by that? Peter is upholding the existing social order by agreeing with the husband's role as the authority and leader in the home. He is subverting or subtly undermining the social order by directly addressing wives, by treating them with dignity and respect as individuals who are each responsible before God for their own decisions. Christianity always does this. It upholds and it subverts. It stabilizes power structures while also undermining those power structures. Christianity upholds what is good and right and true in society, but it, dis- it subverts what is distorted by sin. Christianity stabilizes authority structures so that they honor God as God intended. But it also undermines authority structures that are not in line with God's will and God's ways. In doing so, these authority structures, they're transformed. And stabilizing and subverting a society's idea of marriage, Christianity has a transforming effect on marriage as an institution. In every way that any institution or relationship honors God's order, Christianity is a stabling influence. In every way that any institution or relationship dishonors God's order, Christianity is a subverting influence. I saw this video that I guess popped up on, on my Facebook feed or something. You know, you start watching it and, and, you, and you can't stop because you got to see what happens at the end. So maybe a five minute video. I think it was a guy in South America 
there's this huge boulder in front of him, eight or nine feet tall, taller than him, probably weighed several times at least. And he had driven about five or six spikes into the boulder. And he was obviously preparing to split the boulder. And he had a sledgehammer. And he started at the top and he hit that top spike and hit the next one and it went down. And he kept repeating this process. And those spikes are barely moving. And that rock's not going anywhere and it's looking exactly the same. But he keeps doing this over and over. And I'm just, you know, fascinated with this. And this guy's crazy. What, what does he think he's doing? And he obviously knew what he was doing. Now he's getting tired. He's lifting that sledgehammer over his head over and over. And slowly but surely, you begin to see these almost imperceptible cracks near the spikes. And they're going in, you know, just a half a centimeter by a half a centimeter. But then suddenly, you see a big crack appear. And then a little bit bigger crack. And sure enough, I don't know, maybe the hundredth time that he hit all those spikes, this boulder suddenly splits in two. Every marriage where a wife practices biblical submission is like a spike in the rock of society. Each blow on that, on that spike is an act that impacts her husband. And it doesn't look like one or two or three blows does anything. But all those spikes and all those blows together, they eventually split that rock. Biblical submission transforms marriages. It's not a bad thing. And transformed marriages transform societies. So Peter gives specific instructions for how this transformation comes about. This is where we see principles for submission in marriage. Principles for submission in marriage. Even if this is not your situation, which it probably is not, there are principles that are relevant to every wife in this passage. In fact, principles relevant to every Christian, male or female, single or married. In verse 2, the unbelieving husband will observe the chaste and respectful behavior of his believing wife. Chaste behavior. That simply means sexual purity. This means avoiding anything that would threaten the exclusive sexual oneness of a marriage. It also includes avoiding behaving and dressing in such a way that entices other men. A Christian woman leaving her home and attending a worship gathering without her non-Christian husband, well, that would have aroused a lot of suspicion. Think about it. It would not have helped if she was dressed provocatively or with excessive adornment. This would have only fueled the rumors that Christians were immoral people who practiced their dark deeds at secret gatherings. That's what people are saying about them. By encouraging wives to maintain sexual purity in fact and in appearance, Peter addresses the matter of adornment. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you weren't nervous before, you might be nervous now. There are two extremes that we can go to when considering this instruction about dress. One is, one extreme is to say that Peter meant a Christian lady should never braid her hair, should never wear anything made out of gold. Essentially, and some Christian groups interpret it this way, the New Testament would not allow for any jewelry or any styling of the hair. And this is often extended to mean 
no makeup as well. That's one extreme. The problem with this interpretation is that this verse also says a woman should not put on dresses, which in the original language is literally not put on clothing. So if we take this last part woodenly, then women should not wear clothes. Since we all agree, I hope, I'm sure, the Bible does not teach women should run around naked, then we can also agree that Peter is not forbidding any and every adornment. He is forbidding excessive ornamentation. Adornment that is excessive to the point of distraction or that is sexually provocative or that entails a lot of time and expense. These are what he is warning against. What is called for is simplicity and purity of dress. Though adornment can enhance physical beauty, and there's, there's nothing wrong with the lady adorning her physical appearance, what is seen on the outside should not be the source of beauty. The other extreme is to say that verse 3 only applies to a particular cultural situation in the first century Roman Empire. That's the other side. See, gaudy clothing and outrageous hairstyles, they were worn by women in high society in the Roman world. One historian wrote this about hair. Curl climbs on top of curl, and over the forehead there arose something which at best looked like the chef de vore of a master pastry cook, and at worst, like a dry sponge. At the back of the hair was plaited, and the braids arranged in a coil which looks like basketwork. Obviously, the attention-grabbing attempts and display of wealth that such hairstyles demonstrated point people's attention toward the individual instead of pointing them towards God. These excesses that they drew people to notice the individual instead of noticing the beautiful character produced in and through those who are followers of Jesus. Yet even though these over-the-top hairstyles were worn in the first century, along with excessive jewelry and these showy garments, this obviously does not mean the warning only applies to the first century. It applies to us as well, and not just to women. For we all know guys who spend a lot of time and money and energy on their looks and on their clothes. We shouldn't go to either extreme. One viewpoint which says no adornment is allowed, or the other that says wear whatever you want. The truth of Peter's words lies between the two. There's a middle road here. This is what he explains in verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. God has given us physical bodies. Let's not forget that it was God who created the human form. There are things that can be appropriately worn to enhance physical beauty. That's not a bad thing. Even the father in the parable of the prodigal son gave his returning son the best robe and a ring. That's the teaching of Jesus. But we do need to know the particular extremes to which we in our time and setting are tempted to go. And it is certainly to focus on adornment instead of the other extreme of complete plainness. We should know our own weaknesses, our own temptations. Physical appearance 
should never distract from the inward nature, should complement it. There's a way that you can dress that complements your physical appearance without distracting from your character. And I'm not going to stand up here and give you specific guidelines for how to dress because these are going to differ from culture to culture, from time period to time period. What remains the same are the principles. And you can work those out before the Lord. The two principles that we've considered are these. Do not dress provocatively. In other words, do not give the impression that you are flaunting yourself sexually. Second principle, dress in such a way that you are complimented physically, but not consumed with your physical appearance. With these principles in mind, each person, perhaps each married couple, should decide how to apply them. The hidden person is not a part of you that can be seen. That's why it's hidden. It refers to that which is invisible in and of itself, which is your character. I can't see your character, but I can hear in your words and I can observe in your actions your inner attitude. Everything physical, everything on the outside is perishable. We grow old, physical beauty fades, our bodies sag and wrinkle and break down. But character, at least for the Christian, should only grow in strength and attractiveness with the years. Those qualities that are especially effective in making a difference in the lives of others are gentleness and a quiet spirit. To be gentle means that you do not insist on your own way. You're not pushy. You're not self-assertive. And it's accompanied by a quiet spirit, which is seen through the calm and collected way that you carry yourself. These things, gentleness and quietness of spirit, they give God delight. They are precious in His sight. Why? Because they are the result of trusting God. The more that you're aware of God's presence, the more you learn to entrust your difficult circumstances to God, the more you please Him. And the more God's presence is manifested through you. Now, gentleness and calmness, they do not mean that you're a pushover. Jesus was the gentlest and the most collected person who ever lived. And he was not a pushover. There's more power and influence in these qualities than in harsh, domineering, and self-assertive attitudes. Guaranteed. Rarely, if ever, is a non-believing husband won over by a wife who is constantly preaching at him, berating him, or nagging him. But pure, and respectful behavior will melt a hardened husband's heart and it will open him up to consider the goodness of God. I hope you've picked up by now that, that the primary way Peter is encouraging Christians to counter the cultural pressure of a pagan world around them is through behavior. By all means, speak the truth and proclaim the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Yet, there are life situations that we're placed in where it is not always feasible or even possible to speak of Jesus Christ. In these moments, we must walk in the example of Jesus Christ by submitting to the will of God and dying on the cross. Jesus paid the debt that you owe. By rising from the dead, Jesus offers to transform your heart. In this way, 
God will use your submission to Christ as it plays out in your submission to others to significantly transform their lives. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge this morning we have looked at a text that is not popular in our day and time. Yet it's your word, Lord. We don't want to read our own thoughts into your word. We don't want to interpret it according to our own desires or preferences, whatever they may be, Lord. We want you to speak to us and you to help us to know how to apply what we've heard to each of our lives, Father. Ultimately, Lord, we're all submitted to you. We surrender ourselves to you, Father. And we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would guide our steps, that you would use us to impact those around us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray this in his name.